Haggai. Haggai, the minor prophet that's hidden away on page 497, if you're using the black Bibles that are provided. 497, the little minor prophet Haggai. And this is the last minor prophet that we will consider. Um, we've made our way through all of them. We were got a little bit out of order, and my apologies for that. So we're actually backtracking a little bit here to the book of Haggai, but this is our last one um, that we're considering this morning. Brother Doug has some handouts. If you did not already get one, uh, you can avail yourself of that by flagging him down. Let's just pause for a moment and ask for God's help as we consider this, His Word. Our Lord, You are kind to us to reveal um, to us your, Your thoughts, Your will, Your intent, Your work in this world. And we are humbled as we approach now the Word of the living God. We pray that as we consider it this morning that you would use it in our lives to shape us, mold us, change us. Help us in these moments that we have to be humbled. May your spirit be the messenger of the hour. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. What are your priorities? What are your priorities? I'm sure if, if I were to ask you to take out a piece of paper this morning and to write down on this piece of paper the things that are your priorities, what is most important to you? What are your, your life priorities? I'm sure that many of us would have some of the same things on our list of priorities, right? I mean, most followers of Jesus, most professing Christians would put some of the same things down. Of course, God or something related to God and His mission or God's calling on my life probably would be, would be near the top of the list. Um, we would probably put something about family. We might put something about, about church, our, our relationships within the body. We would undoubtedly have somewhere on that priority list our, our career or anything like that. All of these things are what we would call our, our priorities, if we did a little, a little priority list. Of course, if you are a believer in Jesus, then your mind is going to verses like 1 Corinthians 10.31, right? Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All right, this, is a, this is a verse that speaks to priorities. Or the little chorus that we sang together a few minutes ago from Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of these things, all these, these peripheral, these secondary, these physical things, these temporal things, all of these things will be added to you. A professing believer, of course, would embrace God, His glory, His mission, His work as a top priority. The question comes, what about our lived priorities? I mean, 
the, the priorities that we live out in our day-to-day life, if we were to look at our lives, what really are our priorities? Not the ones that we verbalize, but the ones that we actually flesh out. I mean, we may claim that the Lord and His work is first in our lives, but what about the real test of that claim? The decisions that we make reveal the real priorities of our life. I mean, we, we would quickly say that God's agenda is our priority, but, but the reality of it is we sometimes fail to accomplish His work because we fail to make daily choices that line up with His priorities. Well, this is not a new challenge. This is not a new problem. God's people throughout the ages have, have always struggled to make God's mission their priority in day-to-day life. We have before us a little prophet, Haggai. Haggai is a reminder, it is an encouragement to keep the main thing the main thing. To keep the thing that is most important as most important. And so the question before God's people in Haggai's day is the same question that is relevant to you and me this morning. Where are your priorities? Where are my priorities? You have a handout there, so you can jot down some notes, a few things that you might want to know about Haggai. First of all, the the author of the book is, of course, Haggai, no surprise. The prophet's name itself means festive or festal. And so some have suggested that uh, Haggai was actually born on one of Israel's festival days, one of the feast days. Beyond that, there's really not a lot that we know about Haggai. Uh, there, there some, there's some supposition based on some statements that he's made, but overall we, we don't know. He seems to be well acquainted with the sacrificial system, Maybe a little clue in there, but uh, but we really don't know a lot about the prophet Haggai, except that he spoke on behalf of Yahweh. He was one of Jehovah's prophets. As far as the dating of Haggai, there are actually five sermons in this book. I've given you actually a little chart there. And from the information that is recorded here, we know when he preached each of these sermons because he actually begins each sermon by telling us when it was preached in the Jewish calendar. He preached this during a four-month period in the year 520 B.C. This would be during the reign of a Persian monarch named Darius. So you see there, I've given you a chart, uh, the, the, the breakdown of the book, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th sermon, where that's contained in the book of Haggai. The, the time stamp, if you will, Uh, the date stamp from the Jewish calendar. So the first sermon, for example, is preached in the sixth month and the first day. And then I've given you what that would translate to in the Gregorian calendar, uh, which is what we use. Uh, So August through December, four-month period, Haggai preaches four sermons. The fourth and fifth sermon were preached on, um, on the same day. The second message in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, is just a a brief affirmation of God's promised presence, that He would help Zerubbabel, that He would bless the obedience of Zerubbabel, who was the chief architect that was rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. He was the, the foreman, if you will, who was heading up that effort. 
And so Zerubbabel obeyed in response to Haggai's first message. And there's kind of a little footnote, that second message. So as we go through the book, we're going to really kind of treat it in, in four parts, although there is um, that second sermon, which is almost a footnote to the first, and we'll include it together. Now, you say, okay, 520 B.C., oh, sure, I, I, I remember that date. Well, <laughs> like I remember what was going on in the fall of 520 B.C., um, maybe you do, but maybe the rest of us need a little bit of a brush up on kind of the historical context. So let's, let's think it through in relation to what is going on. Now you remember that the destruction of Jerusalem occurred in 586 BC. The prophets had been prophesying. You remember this as we kind of journeyed chronologically through the minor prophets. Remember the, the prophets are saying, repent, God's going to destroy you. Repent, God is going to punish you. Repent, and, and Israel first, never to be recovered, and Judah second, that, those prophecies came true. God sent in an invading army to chastise his people. Well, Jerusalem fell in 586 B.C. to Nebuchadnezzar's army. They launched a three-stage offensive which ended in the destruction of the city, the walls were torn down, and the temple was burned. At that point, most of the inhabitants of Jerusalem were then exiled to Babylon. They were taken captive and deported to Babylon, and they would spend the next 70 years there in captivity. But in those messages, you remember, almost to a man, these prophets also foretold that God would, would redeem His people, that His people would be recovered, that He had plans for them after this period of captivity. And God was working, He was orchestrating events to fulfill the promises that He had made to His people. And so how did He do that? Well, you see there uh, on your little timeline, 539 B.C., there was the fall of Babylon to the Persians. So Babylon takes... Uh, takes Jerusalem, takes its inhabitants into captivity, but then Babylon is defeated now by the Persians. And a Persian leader named Cyrus the Great came to power and conquered Babylon. A few years later, um, somewhere around 539 to 530 B.C., there was actually kind of a second edict, but, but the, the edict of Cyrus the Great... Um, would, would He decided he wanted to gain loyal subjects, that he wanted to foster, do something that would foster their goodwill. And so what does he do? He allows them to return to their homelands to rebuild their conquered cities. So Jerusalem was, of course, one of the targets of being rebuilt. And when Cyrus allowed the Jews to go back, Zerubbabel, you will want to remember that name. There's no, there's no book named after him, but he comes up in several different books because he was a key player in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He returned in 538 or 537 B.C. Now, unfortunately, the group that he returned with was pretty anemic. There was only 50,000 Jews a mere fraction of those that had been taken into captivity that were willing to, to uproot themselves. They had, they had become comfortable in the land of Babylon. They, Seventy years now were a generation later. 
many of them didn't want the discomfort of going back to a city that had been ransacked and the work associated with rebuilding it. So Zerubbabel takes this group back, but it's even discouraging for them to look around and say, really, only 50,000 of us? And so the building, particularly the building of the temple, ground to a halt. It slowed, and then it slowed some more, and then eventually the temple sat only partially reconstructed. Until 520 B.C. Enter Haggai and Zechariah. Zechariah and Haggai both were prophets who who preached the, the strong message that the people need to get back to the work that God had called them to that they needed to resume the rebuilding of the temple. And so in 520 B.C., which is, which is where we're at right now in our chronology, Haggai and Zechariah bring a message from God, encouraging, strengthening, even chastising the people to get back to the work that they had been called to. Well, their preaching was successful. Their preaching bore fruit. And so it was five years later, in March of 515 B.C., that the temple was completed and dedicated. All right, so that's the historical context. This is where we stand. Haggai is saying, all right, get back to the work that God has called you to. So that's the historical context. Now think about that for a moment, what that means to the spiritual context in which Haggai is preaching. In abandoning this temple project, these people had demonstrated that that God was not exalted above all else. There was something else. There were other things that they valued more than the rebuilding of God's house. And God had responded, chapter 1, verse 9, right? He said, "You, you look for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord? Because of my house that is in ruin. Well, every one of you runs to his own house. God was now working in their midst, yea, even chastising them, because they had allowed other things to become more important. God had removed his blessing from their efforts. They were working, but God was, it says in verse 9, blowing it away. And so what the prophet is calling them to is to make God's priorities your priorities and your and his blessings will then return chapter 2 verse 19 is the seed still in the barn and yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not yielded fruit but from this day i will bless you that's kind of the end of this sermon he's saying you get back to the work and god's blessings will return and so of course we know they did that but that's the context in which Haggai and Zechariah are preaching. Return to the work. Now, of course, there are valuable lessons that are timeless for us. God's prophet is calling his people, really, ultimately, to make God's priorities their priorities. This is important to God. It should be important to you, too. Well, that message is timeless. We need to be called back to God's priorities again and again. So how does Haggai remind us what happens when we consider God's priorities? 
Well, the first thing we see is in the first message of Haggai that when we consider God's priorities, it challenges our comfort. Considering God's priorities challenges our comfort. The first message of Haggai is a section that is a call to return to the rebuilding of the temple, but it really isn't ultimately about a building project. It really goes to the heart of why they had stopped in the first place. If they had stopped because they were discouraged, they valued comfort more than God. If it was difficulty that stopped them, then that demonstrated that they they valued their own ease more than God. If it was because of opposition, then they valued their own safety and perhaps even their own life more than God's priorities. So this is the case. This is what is taking place here. They had abandoned the temple project. And in fact, one step beyond that, not only had they abandoned the temple project, now there's this stockpile of of materials that were for the rebuilding of the temple. Well, hey, that material is just sitting there. And hey, I need sheetrock on my house. So what do they do? They, they didn't have sheetrock. You're all looking at me with this blank stare. All right. They took the, mater- the building materials and they, and they went and built their own houses. They made sure that they were living in comfort. So they had time to build. They had opportunity to build. What had happened was, well, you know, I need this material for my... So actually they were literally looting the very material that was for the temple to now rebuild their own homes. So Haggai calls on them. He challenges them. You're, you're comfortable. You're getting really comfortable as you, as you build your own houses, but what about God's priorities? So how does he go about calling on them to renew their work? First of all, he says they need to stop making excuses. What were the people saying? Well, notice with me chapter 1 and verse 2. Uh, there's, the, there's that date stamp there in verse 1, and the, he says in verse 2, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts. This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. It's not time for that. They actually had returned to Jerusalem, you'll remember, to rebuild the city. So what are they saying when they say, Well, it's not the right time. This is a nice way of saying it's not convenient right now. They wanted to wait until God brought more favorable conditions. I'm reminded of Proverbs 26, verses 13 and 14. The lazy man says, there's a lion in the road. A fierce lion is on the streets. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the lazy man in his bed. Get the picture? This guy's in bed. And one of my favorite things in life, I don't know about you, one of my favorite things in life is to roll over and go back to sleep. Right? It's just one of those simple pleasures, right? <gasps> Look, it's 15 more minutes before I have to get him up. I'm going to roll over this way. As the door turns on its hinges, so the lazy man, oh, I don't want to get up yet. I don't want to get up yet. In fact, you know what? There's probably a lion out there anyway. I would get eaten if I went out. Now, nah, just stay in bed. Right? That's, that's what is, is happening here, right? The, 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 the lazy man comes up with any lame excuse, even these implausible excuses like, oh, there's a lion in the street. That's what these people are doing. 
Um, do your kids ever do that? I mean, you know, they, they come up with these, these really pathetic reasons why I can't obey right now. No, Pastor, my kids never do that. Maybe it's just mine, right? You know, they, they come up with, well, I couldn't do that because, and then they, they have this lame excuse why, really? Really? I mean, come on. Is that the best you can come up with? I can't obey right away, Dad, because... I mean, that's what the children of Israel were doing here. But let's be honest. <laughs> we're that way, too. Well, I know I, the, the Spirit is speaking to my heart about witnessing to that coworker, but uh, maybe another time. Uh, well, I know I should serve that brother or sister in Christ in this way, but it's just not convenient right now. I know I should take that step of obedience and faith, but we do the same thing. We're, we're often sometimes, let's face it, we're sometimes lazy when it comes to the work of God. Now, we work really hard at finding excuses why we can't obey God or we can't obey Him right now, maybe another time, maybe a little bit later. Uh, perhaps you have heard Christians who just wax eloquent about how bad our world is becoming. Our, our, our society is just so close to the gospel anymore. It's just so hard these days to, to be a testimony, a consistent testimony for Christ. Folks, there were Christians who remained a clear witness when being a Christian meant being lion food, okay? We, we have no excuse. Now, I'm not denying that society is growing more wicked, but let's not use that as an excuse for why, well, now's not a good time to, to give the gospel. Now's not a good time to be a testimony for Christ. Now's not a good time to... I wonder this morning, what other excuses do you and I have that stand in the way of our service to Christ? Are we quick to obey or are we quick to look for a reason why it's just not convenient? Now's not really the best time to rebuild the temple. So he calls on them, first of all, to stop making excuses. And then he challenges them in verses 3 through 6 of chapter 1 to adjust their priorities. The fact is, when our work is more important than God's work, our priorities need to change. God's people didn't have time to build the temple, but they had time and energy for their own needs. They built elaborate homes. They, they used the material that was dedicated for the temple itself. Uh, notice chapter 1, uh, verse 4. Is it time for you, yourselves, to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? What, is, what are these paneled houses? We might, we might talk about, about wainscot, you know, the, the fancy um, dimensioned panels that go around with a nice chair rail and everything. Ooh, that's an upgrade. I'll pay for that. Right? So they're, they're, they're not just building their houses. Oh, they're making sure they have all of the amenities of the day. They're making sure they're nice and comfortable. Now, now, folks, there's nothing wrong with having a nice house. 
There's nothing wrong with, with living in a, a, a comfortable condition. There's nothing wrong with the, the creature comforts. But when those things become more important to us than service to God, there's a problem. We need to make sure that God's priorities are our priorities. And if not, we need to adjust them. And so that's really what the prophet is doing. But in verses 8 through 12, he wants them to know that, that what they need to do is not only stop making excuses and adjust their priorities, but to simply obey, to, to do the work. He wants them to, to get in gear and obey, not listen to a message, not agree with it, not say amen, but verse 8, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. Go get to work. You see, it's really easy for us to say, oh, yes, Lord, yeah, we, we should do that. Yes, amen. But we need to get it in gear and obey. But how do we do this? Verse 14, we do it in the strength of God. Verse 14, the prophet says, So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the son of Shiltel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of uh, Jehozadak, the priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. God worked in their heart. God motivated them, and they worked in the strength of the Lord. Now, this is important for us, right? Because, because we can say, Lord, we should make our priority, your priorities ours. Lord, we should, we should kick it in gear and we should get to work, but let's not forget that unless the Lord does the work, nothing else matters. Unless the Lord touches the heart, nothing else matters. So this is important for us to remember in our spiritual efforts, even to win the lost around us. Let's not make excuses. Let's not put off and say, well, th this is not the time for that. But even as we do, we must recognize that God must be at work. And so they are called upon to work in the strength of God. Well, that's, has, uh, that's, that's Haggai's first message. His second message begins for us, well, really his third message, but his second message begins for us in chapter 2 in verses 1 through 9. The people began to compare what they were doing to the former temple, and they grew discouraged. They grew disillusioned. We see that some of the oldest among them had, had dim recollections of what the temple of Solomon looked at, and they, they were saddened because this new temple didn't have the glory of the old. And so Haggai comes along in his second message and, and he encourages them to consider God's priorities, and considering God's priorities challenges our negative spirit. How often do we grow discouraged when we reflect on God's work in the past, and we compare to the meager efforts that we're doing for Him now? And so when that happens, the work of God is in danger. So God addresses this by, by instructing them by, by, by uh, correcting their critical negative spirit. There's, there's nothing more devastating in the work of God. There's nothing more devastating in a church than a, a critical, sour spirit. Now, I thank the Lord that we have 
a wonderful spirit here at our church. And I am thankful that we don't deal with persistent complaining um, like some churches do. I'm appreciative of your spirit. So I'm not preaching it a problem. I'm preaching a principle. The reality is that we all are prone to a negative spirit. We're all prone to be, to be critical, to be backbiting, to, be, to, see, to see the negative. What we need to do is to correct that. God's people in Haggai's day aren't really different than we are. They were susceptible to discouragement, and when we get discouraged, we begin to complain. We, we get disillusioned in the midst of God's work. So, so how do we reject a negative spirit? How does Haggai call on these people to reject a negative spirit? Well, the answer is by looking at things from God's perspective. How did they see the work that they were doing? Well, chapter 1, verse 3 They saw it as a small thing, as an unimportant thing, as a, as a little thing. But God saw it differently. This temple would be great because He would make... Excuse me, I think it's chapter 2, verse 3. I think I have something written. Yes, chapter 2, verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory... And how do you see it now in comparison with this? Is this not in your eyes nothing? The people looked at this and they said, this is nothing. This is, I mean, think about what Solomon's temple was. This, this is nothing compared to that. That's how they saw it. But God had a different perspective. This temple would actually be great, yea, even greater than the first temple. This temple would be wonderful because something very special would happen in it. In verses 5 through 9, God reveals to them His larger plan. According to the word that I covenanted with you uh, when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth and sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. What is he talking about? This temple will house the desire of nations. Now think with me about your Christmas hymnody. Where do you hear that phrase? Come, desire of nations, come, right? This temple will be glorious because one day Messiah would be there. The one for whom the, the, the nations long. Christ would occupy this temple. The glory was greater, not because the edifice itself was greater, but because of what would happen there. Christ would come. And so this is itself a hint of the gospel. The one who would who would obliterate the need for the sacrificial system because he himself would be the perfect sacrifice would occupy this temple. 
You see, they were just looking at the physical. They were just looking at the facade. They were comparing it to, to the glory, the physical glory of Solomon's temple. But God has something much bigger in mind. When we get our eyes on the temporal, the here and now, the what does this building look like? The, the what, does this, what do we see as far as counting the number of people in the crowd? When we see the, the, the dollar signs, when we look just merely at the physical, at the temporal, at that which will not last, we become discouraged. But when we see things as God sees them, when we look from God's perspective, our hearts are raised up, we're encouraged. And so the message of Haggai is actually a message of encouragement. And the way that we are encouraged is by getting back to the task, putting one foot in front of the other and seeing things as God does. What does Galatians say? Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. And so this prophet challenges our negative spirit. We see in the the next message of Haggai in chapter 2, that considering God's priorities challenges us to guard against misplaced value. In chapter 2, in verse 15, the very crux of this message, consider, he says, carefully from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone. Since in those days when one came to a heap, um, let's go down to verse 18, Consider now from this day forward, uh, this is 19, which is what we read earlier, is the seed still in the barn, and yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not yielded fruit, but from this day I will bless you. He's, uh, he's calling on them to, to think back to before they began the building. Go back to 15 years before you return to the work of the Lord and and. Let me tell you about your offerings on the altar that were, were here. You, you tried to make sacrifices. Those things didn't make you holy. Think back even a generation ago to your forefathers who, who rejected God that were still going through the religious forms. They had the temple. They had the sacrificial system. Yet they were in rebellion against God and they were judged. What made you unclean? What made them unclean? Perhaps these people were not pursuing idolatry like their fathers did. They may not have been encouraging immorality and violence, yet they were still guilty. God still withheld His blessing. Fifteen years of doing your own thing, the prophet says, made God withdraw His blessing from you. So what he's doing is he's encouraging them. Now think about this. Just rebuilding the temple doesn't make you close to God. Just having the sacrifices in place does not make you close to God. Building this temple will not keep you pure. It will not keep you clean. The only thing that keeps you clean is a heart that is dedicated to God. A heart that seeks after Him. A heart that makes His priorities your priorities. And the same thing is true for us today. You know, we have a tendency to, to look at the world around us, which grows darker and further from God each day. And, and we kind of wag our fingers at that, that paganism over there. But let's recognize that it is not, is not the paganism that is the root of the problem. The root of the problem is going our own way. 
and my way may look different than your way, may look different than the world's way, but the problem is we're going our way. And these people that Haggai is preaching to, you know, they weren't, they weren't doing what others had done. They weren't doing what their forefathers had done. They weren't setting up idol groves and bowing down to the idols, yet, yet God still withdrew his blessing from them. Why? Because they were going their own way. And so it is easy for us to condescendingly look at others whose sin is so much worse than ours when the reality is we are going our own way just as surely as someone who is in open and obvious rebellion against God. So he challenges them. The problem is values. The problem is what is important. The problem is seeking that you're seeking your own way rather than seeking after God. Well, Haggai announces for the second time that the day in the future would come when God would shake the world, that God was doing something bigger. And so in this final sermon of Haggai, we learn that considering God's priorities challenges us to live for eternity. One day, everything they know would be overthrown. It would be, be cast down by God. And God would take David's dynasty. David's dynasty is represented here by Zerubbabel. So don't just key in on Zerubbabel as, as this key player. He, he certainly was that. He was a real person who was instrumental in the rebuilding. But, but beyond that, he is actually uh, part of David's dynasty. He is the, the ancestor to Joseph, who would be the earthly, the earthly father of Jesus. God would take Zerubbabel. He would honor him before all the nations. They would be the object of God's special favor and would be appointed to him to rule over the world. How does that come true? It comes true in Jesus. Jesus is, is spoken of not by name in this book, but, but as the, the heir of Zerubbabel's blessing. And so in the light of these future plans, people can be encouraged. They can take heart that God is doing something much bigger. Yes, this temple is small. Yes, this temple doesn't compare physically to the temple of Solomon, but God is doing something far greater here. So what should we do in response to that? What should God's people do in response to that? He says in verse 21, chapter 2, Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the, the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. God is going to do something great through this offspring of Zerubbabel, Jesus himself. So how do we respond to that? Well, first we must hold loosely the perishable things of this life. The things that are here and now will one day be overthrown. Everything that we tend to value is temporal. Value things of eternity. 
and then make our life's work as we sang about earlier, as we read about in our call to worship, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so this morning I would ask you, what are you doing for eternity? As we started out this morning thinking about priorities and God's priorities, we must live for eternity. You've probably heard the illustration before of a tombstone, right? You go walk through a cemetery and you see the, the birth date and the death date. And in the middle is the dash, right? You've probably heard preachers, perhaps heard preachers talk about this before, right? And challenge people, what are you doing with the dash, right? That's all the stuff in between, between the birth and death. What are you doing with the dash? Well, that's a valid challenge. And that's important for us to think about how we are expending our lives. But what I want us to think about this morning is if we expend the dash for what's beyond the dash, then we are living God's priorities. In other words, when you look at a tombstone, you see these two dates with a line in between. Don't live for the dash. Don't live for what is in between. Live for what comes after. Live for that which is eternal. Live for that which will last forever. Live with eternity's values in view, as the writer once said. And so this morning, how can you and I live for eternity? How can we expend ourselves in God's service for that which will last even beyond the date on our tombstone? How can we invest ourselves in other people? How can we sow seeds of the gospel? How can we disciple others? How can we even expend our physical resources in such a way that it promotes the kingdom of God and His righteousness? We're challenged by the book of Haggai to consider God's priorities and in so doing, live for eternity. Father, we thank You for these moments we've had together in Your Word. We thank You for the way in which You work in our hearts through the timeless truths. We thank You for Your messengers some who were obscure and unknown, but left behind your very words that we can consider this morning.